Jalea Davis was the victim of a car crash in November 2011. The investigation into the cause of the accident lasted over a year. When the police ruled the death a drunk driving accident, Jalea's family took on the mission to find justice for Jalea. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Tonight's case was researched by Jess, and I want to thank her for all of her help. This is a complicated and controversial case, so I really appreciate her being willing to take it on. This is the case of Jalea Davis, and it's one that carried over from the old Insight schedule, though it doesn't say on the sheet who suggested it, but whoever you are, thank you. One of the biggest issues that Jess pointed out to me in this case is that the facts and the opinions really blur. She and I did our best to draw those lines And the truth is that there's just so much in question and doesn't necessarily make sense that there really is room for interpretation of the facts. Also, before starting this, neither one of us knew that there's actually a long-form podcast dedicated to this case. I have a policy here at Crime Lines that neither me nor my researchers ever use another podcast as a source. But as soon as I hit publish on this, I'm going to go over to Mile Marker 181 to listen. The show, Mile Marker 181, is what I would assume a deeper dive into this case, so you might want to check it out as well. A lot of the source material for this episode comes from Julia's mom because she publicly posted many documents that she got by filing a Freedom of Information Act request. On closed cases, even some open cases, but definitely closed cases, families can do this. You have a right to see those police reports. You have a right to see those transcripts. You have the right, just like any reporter, any podcaster, any news anchor has, to request those documents. And if you want to see these documents for yourself, you can go to the Justice for Julia Facebook page. What we're going to do with this episode, and I know I don't normally give a table of contents before we even get started, but if you know this case at all, you know that it draws strong reactions. This is one of those cases where the family does not accept the official police ruling, and I don't want people sending me angry emails halfway through listening because they think I'm being one-sided. But on the other hand, if I sat here and interrupted telling you guys what happened, telling you guys how the investigation unfolded, if I interrupted that constantly to give you the counterpoint, it was going to make this episode just such a mess. So what we're going to do is we're going to first go through the known facts in this case, the what happened. Then we'll go through the investigation and the conclusion the police reached. Then we will go through the contradictions and the discrepancies. These are what are really at the root of the family's questions, concerns, and their alternative theory of what happened. That was a lot of disclaimers to put into an episode, but let's get started. This case starts in November 2011. Julia had just turned 20, less than three weeks before her death. Julia had graduated from high school in Marietta, Ohio, and was working at Hollister, which is a clothing company geared toward the high school set. She hung out with friends. She spent time laughing and joking with family. She was really just a happy, normal 20-year-old. Based on everything you see online in the photos and the memories that her family shares of her, it's pretty clear she had a happy childhood. She was raised with her mom, Kim, and her little sister, Toby. On November 19th, 2011, Julia left her house around 5 in the evening. She was driving her silver Kia Optima, which is a mid-size sedan. She was planning to 
hang out with some friends, and then spend the night at her friend Kristen Bechtold's house. Jalea went, picked Kristen up, and they then went to a mutual friend's house in the Parkersburg, West Virginia area. And this is about a 20-minute drive south from Marietta. It sounds like there was a little bit of a party going on, if not more than a little bit, because there was quite a bit of drinking happening. Quite a few people were there. And Jalea was drinking at this house. Then a group that were at this house party decided around midnight to go into town and play pool. It was Kristen and Jalea, along with two young men named Jordan Campbell and Freddie Scott. And then there was another woman with them named Katie Nelson. Something that's interesting to note is that Kristen, Freddie, and Katie all had family in law enforcement. Kristen's grandfather was a former sheriff, and Freddie and Katie's fathers were either current or former police officers. At some point, a man named Chris Latimer was there. He was either Katie's boyfriend or ex-boyfriend, and it was said that he and Julia flirted a bit. The group went to a place called Nip and Q in Parkersburg. My researcher Jess, in doing her due diligence, noted here that this place is now closed, but it had two whole stars on Yelp when it was open. Remember, Julia was just 20 years old. In the U.S., the drinking age in every state is 21. But it's not really that clear if they were drinking at the pool hall, as in the bar was serving someone underage. It's possible, based on what she drank at the party, that she would have still been drunk even if she spent the next hour or so not drinking. For the first part of the evening and into the night, everything was fine. Jalea was texting and calling people, family, friends. Nothing seemed off. It was all very casual. But then it really took a turn. At 3.28 in the morning, she called her sister, Toby, and she asked her to come pick her up from a gas station in Parkersburg that was on the corner of Rosemar and Emerson. This is about two miles from the pool hall. Toby said she heard Julia demand Kristen give her back her keys. And Toby heard Kristen's voice in the background. So we know they were together at this point. And this is 3.28. Five minutes later at 3.33, Julia called her sister back again. And this time she's crying. She told her she was on the interstate driving, so we're talking I-77, and she needed Toby to pick her up from a rest stop near the Williamstown exit, which is a welcome center. This is a good nine miles or more from the original location that she asked to be picked up from. According to Toby, Jalea was obviously mad at Kristen, because she was cursing and she was calling her names. But it doesn't sound like Toby heard Kristen's voice, so it's unclear if Jalea was yelling these things at Kristen or about Kristen. Toby asked her what was wrong, and Jalea said that she would tell her when they met up at the rest stop. And police did confirm the times of these calls using phone records. As Toby was driving down to Parkersburg at 3.41 in the morning, the first of three 911 calls was made. So this is eight minutes after she was on the phone with her sister. The transcripts of the three known 911 calls are found on the Justice for Julia Facebook page. Again, Kim's posting there was a huge source for this episode. The first 911 call was just a motorist calling in a car that was broken down at mile marker 181 of the interstate. The car was right up against the guardrail and the lights were on. But the caller is a little confusing here. Again, this is just a transcript. The caller said, 
quote, he's right by the car, he's up against the guardrail. So that makes it sound like there's someone there, standing there, right by the car, against the guardrail. But then the caller said that they didn't actually see anyone standing around. It was a cold night, and they were just concerned something was going on. The operator then asked for the caller's name, and it says, end of recording, making me assume the person hung up or they at least lost service. I first wasn't entirely sure what to make of, he's right by the car, and then the, I don't see anyone standing there. And this is why transcripts are hard, because he could have, and I'm assuming it's a he, I don't even know if the caller was a he, he, the caller, whoever, if they were saying it like they misspoke, they're like, he's right by the car, uh, he's up against the guardrail, meaning maybe he meant the car was up against the guardrail and just stumbled over their words. It was 3.30 in the morning. But if he confidently said those sentences, he's right by the car, he's up against the guardrail, then it does sound like they're saying that they see someone there. And then they change their mind, say they aren't, and then hanging up as soon as they were asked their name. This hanging up when being asked their name, it could be someone who just doesn't want to be involved in whatever this was. I'm just not sure why they called it in. Because a passing motorist in the dark, if I see a car off to the side that looks broken down, I assume it's broken down. I don't know that I would have been concerned enough to call 911 over it. But something about this situation alarmed the person enough to want to call 911, but coming short of giving their name. I'm not saying this 911 call is proof of anything, but as I was going through the research that Jess sent me and the documents I was looking at, this is the first thing that I read that made me kind of scratch my head a little bit. Now, seven minutes after this call, another call comes in. This time it's a truck driver. He had passed what he thought was a body on Interstate 77, and it was in the roadway, in the passing lane. It was dark, though, and he was driving fast, which, I mean, normal highway speeds, but we're talking 70 miles an hour. So he wasn't 100% sure what he saw. In the transcript, you can almost feel his panic. He told the dispatcher that he pulled over and he was walking back to what he saw. And he noticed that there were other people starting to stop as well. And he kept saying, I hope it's just a deer. Eventually, he got close enough to confirm that what he saw was actually a mangled human body. The 911 operator asked him if he could check for a pulse, and he says, there's parts of him. He must have been pretty upset because the dispatcher told him to turn around and look away. But as upset as he was, and obviously he was, he said he was pretty sure that this was some type of crime scene. Some crime had happened and that he needed to direct traffic out of the roadway because people were coming very close to hitting the body. And so that's exactly what he did. He used his flashlight to guide people out of that lane. And I'm always amazed at people who can be this strong to do what just needed to be done while also simultaneously experiencing incredible trauma. He stayed on the line with 911 until a deputy arrived on the scene. There was a third 911 call that came in right before deputies arrived on the scene. This person was just driving by. They didn't stop, but they saw the trucks pulled over. They saw someone directing people away from the passing lane. They thought it was a deer in the road, but since they didn't see the police there, they were just calling to make sure that someone called it in. While they were standing at the scene, two young women came running up. It was Toby and a friend who had come with her. They saw all the trucks stopped, so they pulled over, obviously worried that Jalea had been in an accident. The body was identified as Jalea Davis, though thankfully, they didn't make Toby look to identify her. 
That would have been incredibly traumatic for her, beyond how traumatic this already is. Julia's car was found two-tenths of a mile past where her body was found. And that's the car that the first 911 caller had called about. Investigators found these circumstances pretty suspicious. In a car accident, the car and the body are usually not found apart. And if they are, it's because the person went through the windshield. While something did hit Julia's windshield on the passenger side, it didn't break the windshield. There wasn't a hole. It was just a very massive, one of those cracks that just goes out from the center. So what this actually looked like to police at first was that Julia may have been hit by her own car, but they had to figure out how she got outside of the car. So the investigation into what happened had two main components, two main tracks. The first was to piece together what happened the night before with Julia and her friends. And then the other was to analyze the crime scene. Now, these obviously occurred concurrently. So we're just going to talk about one first and then we'll get to the other. So we're going to talk about the friends first. It's these pieces coming together that both the police and Julia's family have used to draw their conclusions about what happened. They're using the same information, but getting to two different conclusions. So one of the people they talked to was Tobby, Julia's sister. She told investigators about the phone calls, how Julia wanted to go home, even though she was supposed to spend the night with Kristen. She told them about the argument that Julia seemed so upset with Kristen about something. And so they asked her, was this weird that Julia and Kristen were arguing or was this normal for them? And Toby said that Julia found Kristen annoying. So all in all, she wasn't shocked to get a call saying that she was annoyed at Kristen, mad at Kristen, and wanted to go home. So Kristen was the last person Toby is putting with her sister that night. So police went to Kristen's home. They went pretty early that day. So we're talking November 20th. They noticed the cars in the driveway. One had a pretty heavy layer of frost on it, and the other barely had a layer of frost on it, leading them to believe one was parked there all night, and the other one had come back fairly recently. But Nobody answered the door. Later that day, Kristen hired an attorney. So she didn't sit down with police for another day or two. And when she did, she had her attorney with her. Now, Kristen says that there were rumors flying around that before she even knew the police wanted to talk to her, she had heard that Julia had gone to a hotel or she was at a party with a bunch of people and she died of a drug overdose and other people had already been arrested. And then there were rumors that she was involved. So her parents decided proactively to hire an attorney even though they weren't sure what was going on. And so that's what Kristen says led to them getting an attorney. But before they talked to Kristen, they managed to talk to two other people that were there that night, and one was Freddie Scott. He said that he drove Kristen, Katie, and Julia from the pool hall back to the house where they had all started their night, and that's where Julia's car had been parked. No one went into the house. They were just outside the house at this point. Julia couldn't find her keys and she was mad about it. But she wasn't mad at Kristen as far as he could tell. She was just angry, frustrated, whatever, at the situation. And then he said Julia got out of his car and went and sat in hers. He personally wasn't necessarily concerned with how she was getting home. And he said, in his view, she wasn't falling down drunk 
so he didn't really give it much of a thought. He then took Kristen and Katie home. Freddie was asked if he had heard any rumors around town about what had happened. And he said he heard one rumor that said Kristen was the one driving Julia's car when the crash happened. He knew that rumor wasn't true because Kristen was with him. And then he said he heard another rumor that he was the one who was driving and he pushed Julia out of the car while it was still moving. These rumors did not take police by surprise because they had already heard them. This area isn't some sprawling metropolis. Marietta is about 13,000 people. Parkersburg is around 30,000 people. A lot of the people in these towns and the surrounding areas knew one or more of the people involved that night. So there was a lot of talking around town about what happened, and a lot of it was based on the suspicious nature of this death. Katie was also there that night. She was the other person in the car, and she went to the police station about 12 hours after the accident to make a voluntary statement. And what she said is pretty much in line with what Kristen would later say. And what Kristen said when she was finally interviewed was that she and Jalea got into an argument because Jalea wanted to have her keys back, which Kristen wasn't handing over. She didn't want Jalea to drive because Jalea was intoxicated, and that's why she was holding on to the keys. She was holding on to them until she called her sister to get a ride. In a later statement that Kristen posted on her personal Facebook account, she added something else about Julia having lost her wristlet in the car and for some reason thinking Kristen had something to do with it being missing. And a wristlet is basically a pouch-style wallet that has a small strap that goes around your wrist. They're mostly used if you don't want to carry a full purse but need more open space than just a standard wallet would give you. Anyway, Julia told Kristen she was going to get a ride from her sister and she just wanted to sit in her car while she waited and she called Toby in front of Kristen to come get her and that's when Kristen gave her her keys when she knew she had a ride home. We do have a discrepancy here though. Kristen said she heard Julia tell her sister that she would explain what was going on when Toby came to pick her up. However, Toby had already told police that this comment was made on the second phone call, not the first. But according to Kristen and Freddie and Katie, Kristen wasn't even with Julia when the second call was made. So Kristen saying, she said this on the first call, Toby saying she said it on the second, and that's a pretty big deal because whether or not Kristen was with Julia in the car on the interstate is pretty much the crux of this entire case. Kristen then said she called Toby herself to make sure she was on her way and she knew how to get to the house where they left Julia. Now we're back to a bit of a discrepancy. Julia planned on going to a gas station to meet Toby. Initially, Kristen said they were supposed to meet at that house. And I don't know exactly where this house was, so it could have been very close to that gas station. She couldn't hear what Toby was saying on the phone until she said something like, oh my God, before hanging up. Now, Toby did not pick up again when Kristen called back. Kristen then said after they left, Julia Freddie drove her and Katie to McDonald's, and the McDonald's drive through and parking lot security footage do show Freddie's car at the window around 3.30 and then pulled out of the parking lot around 3.33. Kristen said the next thing she heard was Toby calling her at 4.16, saying something about Jalea and a car accident, and she wasn't sure if Jalea had been hit by a car or that the car was crashed and they weren't sure where Jalea was. She couldn't seem to remember which thing was said on that call. And like Freddie, since this had happened, now we're looking like two days, she had also heard a lot of rumors. People were calling her and 
giving her stories about what happened. So the police asked her, what do you think happened? She said to her, it sounded like Julia was driving drunk down the highway and hit the guardrail. Because she didn't want to get a DUI, she got out of the car and started walking. While walking on the highway in dark clothing, she was hit. Okay, so this is another discrepancy, but it's a pretty minor one. When Kristen last saw Julia, she was not wearing dark clothing. She was actually wearing a bright white jacket. Not sure why Kristen was misremembering. As for those phone calls to and from Toby, it's not clear from what's been posted whether or not Kristen's phone records were ever checked to independently verify all these phone calls. But again, in this Facebook status that Kristen posted down the road a bit, she says her cell phone records were checked, at least her pings to see where she was. Much of what Kristen said is what the investigators had already heard from Katie and Freddie. Now, with this McDonald's footage, though, this footage needs to be disclaimed a little bit because it's not clear who was in the car. At the drive through window, you can, of course, see Freddie talking to the guys at the window, and he's in the driver's seat. It looks like there is someone in the car right behind him. And if someone's in the back seat, it's pretty likely someone was in the passenger seat as well. It's not like he's an Uber driver. According to Kristen, Freddie, and Katie, Kristen was sitting in the passenger seat and Katie was the shadowy figure you can see in the back seat. The police did have the receipt from their order and asked Kristen if she could remember what was ordered. Her memory was a little vague. She said she had ordered chicken nuggets and fries Freddie got a hamburger of some type, and she didn't know what Katie had gotten. Now, this did match the receipt, but this is also kind of a rundown of the only things McDonald's sells, but it is in line with the receipt. Again, she gave the statement days later after people had been talking about the case, been talking about what they thought happened, the rumors. She and Freddie and Katie had time to talk. Now, I'm not saying that they conferred to get their story straight, and Freddie told her what to say was ordered at McDonald's. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just saying that there was time for that to have happened. It's not like they were interviewed and separated right away. Now, these details are important. I'm not just being detailed for the sake of stretching out an episode. It's important to note that Freddie's car was at McDonald's when... Julia called Toby to say she was already on I-77 headed to the Welcome Center. So anyone who was in Freddie's car could not have been with Julia when the accident happened. So it's very important to know who was in that car. The other young man, in case you guys forgot, there was another person who went to the pool hall with them. I kind of forgot already. Jordan Campbell. It doesn't look like he was questioned at all. And The impression I get is he wasn't really known in the group. Freddie knew him, maybe was setting him and Julia up that night. But he dropped out of the narrative completely when the others were headed back to Julia's car. So he may have just gone his own way by then. But in short, the witnesses of Julia's movements that night didn't really have a lot to offer that really helped investigators. They saw Julia sitting in her car, waiting on her sister, and that's about it. It is not known why Julia would then, having told them she was sitting in her car, first plan to go to the gas station to wait for Toby to pick her up, and then call back and ask her to meet her nine miles away instead. We know Julia was drunk. That comes out on her autopsy talk screen, and that impairs judgment. But she already seemed to have made the decision to call her sister and wait for a ride. So I'm wondering what overrode that decision. She was upset when she called her sister back. She was crying a lot. Maybe she felt unsafe, whether this is a real or perceived threat, but she didn't feel staying where she was and waiting 
was a safe decision. And now, again, her family has another view that we'll get to. But without evidence to the contrary, investigators were left to assume that these three had left and gone to McDonald's, then went home, and did not see Julia again that night. So let's leave the witnesses for a minute and move to the crime scene. The scene was about a quarter mile long. If we measure it from where the car first struck the guardrail until it came to a stop down the road a bit. So we're talking a quarter mile. It's a pretty fair distance. We're going to talk about Julia's body first, frankly, because I want to get this part over with. It is so, so sad and so horrible. And I'm not going to get too detailed about it. It was awful. It was initially believed that Julia had somehow become pinned against the guardrail before she ended up in the roadway. And while in the roadway, she had been run over by at least one semi-truck. If there's any small mercy in the story, it's that she was already dead when she was run over. The first 911 caller who saw her body and said it was in parts, he also made it clear she had been decapitated. They did some forensic tests like blood samples, nail scrapings, DNA swabs. Her blood alcohol level, which I said she was drunk, it was 0.19. In Ohio, the legal limit for driving is 0.08. So she's past double the legal limit for driving. And 0.19 is high. It's not one of those levels where you kind of feel a little tipsy, you probably shouldn't drive, but you do. It's not buzzed driving, which is still drunk driving. I mean, we're talking 0.10, 0.12 is where you're starting to see impairment with slurred speech. You go a little bit more, you're getting balance issues, coordination issues. So at 0.19, no matter what Freddie said, Julia was seriously impaired. She was obviously not in a situation to be driving anywhere, let alone in interstate, in the dark, highway speeds. This was a really bad idea if she was the driver. The legal limit for driving under the influence, if you're under 21, is actually a lot lower because you're not supposed to be consuming alcohol at all. It's 0.02, which at Julia's weight could have been as little as one drink. And so she was several times past that. When Julie was found, it seemed somewhat inexplicable, but they came up with an explanation for it. She was nude from the waist up. And near where her body was found were her clothes, including her bra. They were draped across the guardrail with her bra on the bottom, her shirt on top of it, and then her jacket on top of that. There was blood on the posts of the guardrails, but on the outside, so not the side facing the highway. And police believe that Julia's head had hit the guardrail there in at least two spots. And if you go on the Facebook page, there are photographs of this, and it's pretty obvious that somehow her head hit those. So with that out of the way, let's look at the car. The damage to the car is on the passenger side, which is consistent with hitting a guardrail. It is the front headlight, the front panel, the passenger door. The window is busted out and both of the tires were flattened. The driver's side side airbag went off, but not the driver's front one or the passenger side at all. This was one of those cars that only enabled the passenger side airbag if it detected someone was sitting in that seat. So it not going off might make you assume, obviously no one was in that seat. But an inspection of her car actually showed that that detector sensor thing had a fault in it. And so it wasn't working. It was pretty much kind of stuck off. Those airbags just wouldn't have gone off. So it doesn't really tell us very much. I ended up learning a lot more than I cared to know about airbag deployment because I honestly don't come to this topic with a whole lot of expertise on that. It struck me as odd that the side airbag deployed, but not the front one. 
However, I've learned that's actually how they are supposed to perform. Airbags themselves can be rather dangerous when they go off, so automotive manufacturers have refined how and when they go off. So this is actually fairly normal for a side impact to only have those airbags go off. When the car was found, it was still in drive. The headlights were on, the doors were locked, and the globe, the inside globe, was on. Now, the reason the car stopped is because it pretty much went as far as it could go in drive with no gas on it and kind of leaned up against a guardrail. This is basically what you would expect if a car was being driven and then someone jumped out of the car. One of the odd things, though, is that the doors were locked because this specific car, this model of car, doesn't automatically lock the doors like some cars do while you're driving off. And not only does it not do it automatically, if you do it manually, it's designed to automatically unlock if the airbags are deployed. The car is basically saying if you're in an accident, you probably need to get out of this car and it automatically unlocks the doors. So these doors should have been unlocked and they weren't. And the inspection of the car could not figure out why. Now the passenger window was shattered and there was windshield damage on the passenger side. And police believe the damage actually came from the inside, something in the car hit the windshield, making that massive crack. There was some glass from the passenger side on the inside of the car, but not tons of glass. So it also made it look like that may have been broken from the inside. Julia's DNA was found on the passenger side doorpost. And by that, I'm meaning where the door attaches to the car, like on the hinge side, and there was also a crack there. It looks like someone or something hit it. These weren't noticed right on the scene. This was something that came out when they did the very thorough search of the car. And from the reports, it actually sounds like they were hesitant to inspect the car too much at the scene because it was dark. And they do have automotive specialists who could come in and inspect it better. And they were wanting to preserve that evidence. However, when they got the car to the station, somehow it got left outside uncovered and Julia's mom actually bought a car cover and brought it out there to cover the car, wanting to preserve the evidence. Now, the interior of the car looked like you'd expect. There was stuff tossed about, but everything in there was what you would expect a 20-year-old to have in their car. This looked like a pretty standard car accident, except they were trying to figure out how Julia both got out of her car and ended up not in the shoulder, but rather all the way over in the passing lane. So she would have crossed a lane and ended up one lane over. Four months after Julia's death, the investigation is still going, and a woman named Ember Stafford came forward. She was a woman in her late 20s, and she said she was at the bar that night when Julia was there with her friends. She said she saw an altercation between Julia, a white woman, and two black men. Ember then said she saw Julia drive off in her own car, and the three she was arguing with hopped into another car and followed her. She characterized what she saw next as horseplay between the cars. Then Julia's car was forced into the right lane and then off the road where Julia left the car. Through the media reports, it didn't make it clear if she meant Julia was thrown from the car, she got out of it voluntarily, I don't know. The investigators took Ember's statement and they compared it to what they had already uncovered and they pointed out to her the things in her story that didn't line up with what investigators believed happened. And they asked her, well, why did it take you four months to come forward? And she didn't really have much of an answer for that. They asked her to take a polygraph. She agreed, and then she failed it. Now, I don't think polygraphs are worth that much, but it did give the investigators some leverage, which is really what their value is. When Ember was confronted with the failed polygraph, she admitted that she lied. 
And then she had a new story that involved someone named Nicole and another person named Freddie. Freddie, we know, was someone who was there that night. Nicole is actually someone else who at some point was there as friends with Julia, but as far as I can tell, has no other involvement in this. Investigators said that they spent about 30 man hours on Ember's claims, and so they decided to charge her with filing a false police report. In court, Ember's attorney argued against jail time. She was the only breadwinner in her home. She had four kids. She was caring for a relative who was disabled. So her going to jail would punish more people than just her, and it would punish them pretty severely. He actually suggested that she serve her sentence on house arrest and spend 15 weekends in jail. That would allow her to at least go to work and support her family. The magistrate instead gave her the max, six months in jail, and a $500 fine. Aside from Ember's false statements, not very many substantiated leads or leads that could be investigated came in. Investigators knew about all the rumors going around town. They knew that the family was suspicious of Kristen, Freddie, and Katie. But about a year after they started their investigation, they made their ruling. It was, I don't know, 14, 15 months of investigating. And they decided that this wasn't murder. It wasn't negligence. This was a drunk driving accident. Now, here's what the police feel occurred. Julia was driving. She was drunk. Highway speeds, dark. This highway where she was going is a bit curvy, a bit hilly. The dome light inside the car was turned on. So investigators think she may have dropped something like her cell phone and was looking for it. So now she has one hand on the wheel, one hand off the wheel feeling around for whatever she dropped and took her eyes off the road. She was impaired by alcohol. And honestly, it's hard to see out of a car in the dark when the dome lights on, which is why we don't usually have them on when we're driving. Julia then hit the guardrail with the front corner of her car, and that deployed her driver's side airbag. She was not wearing her seatbelt, and the force of the guardrail coupled with the counterforce of the airbag, Julia was thrown out of the car through the passenger side window. Her head hit the two guardrail posts as she was somewhat trapped between the car and the guardrail, with the second blow being fatal. At some point, her clothes snagged on the guardrail, and as her body was then thrown, they're using the word catapulted, if that gives you maybe a better image, her clothes came off. And when she was thrown or catapulted, she was on her roof and then the trunk of her car. When the two passenger side tires blew out, it allowed the car to somewhat veer back out of the shoulder and over into the driving lane. This is when Julia was then thrown off the car into the passing lane. The car was obviously still in drive. This is a little bit of a downhill slope, so momentum kept it going until it kind of settled in at a guardrail down a little bit. Julia's body now in the road was hit and maybe even dragged by trucks that couldn't get out of the way. So the official ruling, this was an accident caused by an impaired driver losing control of the vehicle, case closed, not homicide. It's the police ruling. There is one crime here that they established did happen, and that is that someone supplied Julia, who was a minor, with alcohol. And that's a misdemeanor in West Virginia. This misdemeanor had a statute of limitations of one year, and the police barely even looked at that angle when they were working this case because they were focused on the crash investigation. If this was a murder or a negligent homicide, that was the much more serious case. So by the time they wrapped up that investigation, it was past a year and it was too late 
to go back and charge anyone who was responsible for supplying the alcohol to a minor. Okay, so that's the investigation and the conclusion by the police. But the family are not satisfied. They do not believe this was an accident. They had a sit-down meeting at the end of the investigation so that they could have their questions answered. But the detectives weren't answering these in a way that satisfied the family. And there is a partial transcript from the meeting. I will admit it is hard to tell tone from a transcript, but it does seem like the bedside manner of the detectives leaves something to be desired. And at one point, I can't remember if it's Kim or Julia's grandfather, says, I don't mean to offend you as they're asking a question, which makes me think the detective was being defensive. You may be thinking, they're police officers. They're not doctors. They're not nurses. What do I expect? These are homicide detectives. They are regularly working with families dealing with loss and trauma. There needs to be a little extra compassion. So the family left this meeting meant to clear up all their questions with a bunch of questions. So one question they had is really for Kristen, and it has to do with a keychain of Julia's. This keychain was her initial, and it was a gift from Toby. According to Kristen, when Julia picked her up, she said she didn't want to take all of her keys with her while they went out. And since she was planning to spend the night at Kristen's, she was going to leave the extras at her house. So she took off the keys she needed, like for her car, and then left the remaining keys attached to the keychain at Kristen's house. The family wanted this keychain back. It had some sentimental value to them. They certainly didn't want Kristen keeping it. People started sending Toby photos saying that they were with Kristen and saw her actually using it. The family asked investigators to please go and get it. They had these photos that showed the keychain was with Kristen. The detective told them there really wasn't enough probable cause for the police to intervene to go and demand it back. They suggested the family ask Kristen to give it back. But by this point, it was clear to Kristen that the family suspected she knew more about Julia's death than she was saying. So it's not like there was an open line of communication between Kristen and the family. Kristen did return the keychain through her attorney after the investigation was closed. So the family's question is, why did you not return this until after the investigation was closed? Why keep it? Now, another question the family has is about the car's black box, a.k.a. the event detection recorder. Investigators told the family that the recorder showed them that no seatbelts were fastened and no one was in the passenger seat at the time the airbags deployed. But then they said that they couldn't tell how fast the car was going because somehow this recorder didn't actually record that piece of information. That struck them as odd. Another concern is that Julia supposedly went through the passenger window, but she left no blood or tissue or clothing fiber behind. And the detectives even said that threw them off at first because they would have expected to have found that. They did find DNA from a swab taken from the frame of the car door, which they were saying confirmed that she went out the window, that she left DNA behind on that plastic. But why wouldn't she leave it on the glass shards that would have likely, you would think, cut her or snagged her clothes a little? She also didn't have glass in her hair, which you would have expected if she went through a window, even if she was wearing a hood or a hat at the time. Along the lines of being thrown on the roof and the trunk, they reportedly found blood on these surfaces, but no dents. You would have expected even a small adult landing on the roof or the trunk with some force would have left a dent, but there weren't any. Also, there were items found just sitting normally in her car. So this crash was impactful enough to throw Julia through the window, but not enough to toss the stuff in her car around. Another question they have is that DNA that did not match Julia was found on the shifter. 
It doesn't appear like they tried to match it to anyone. If this DNA was run and it excluded Freddie and Kristen and Katie and anyone else who was with Jalea that night, it would go a long way for the family to accept that no one else was driving the car that night, which is something they believe happened. But it could also include one of those people, which would then back up what they're saying. So this DNA test could actually really help. Now, since Julia's death, her mom, Kim Davis, has maintained an active Facebook page that I've mentioned a number of times. She's both trying to keep her daughter's memory going, but also advocate for what she thinks is just flat out the wrong ruling. She suspects that three of the people there that night, being the children or grandchildren of law enforcement, is why the ruling was made the way it was, that there was some level of cover-up. The police, however, they defend their investigation, saying that they followed all the leads, they called in the experts they could think of, and they used the evidence to come to the conclusion that they did. Some of the rumors that have gone around involve Jalea being beaten up by one or more of the people who are with her that night. And obviously, due to the extent of her injuries and the damage to her body from being run over, that would have obscured any evidence of this. So what does Julia's family think happened? Let's strip the rumors out of it. I don't know that they necessarily have a single theory step-by-step like the police mapped out of what could have happened. They just feel there are some pinpoint truths that the evidence supports. One, they do not believe that Julia was in the car at the time she died. Like I said, there was a lack of evidence she went through that window. Airbag residue was found on her, which would to me support the idea that she was in the car at least at the time of the crash. But again, there was no glass in her hair, but somehow airbag residue was in her hair. So I'm wondering if this is one of the points the family doesn't believe the evidence is accurately being reported by the police as far as that airbag residue goes. And again, if there is a cover-up here, it's hard for those of us on the outside to really evaluate completely because we have nothing but the police investigation at this point to look at to draw our conclusions. They believe that when she was on the phone with her sister yelling about Kristen, they interpret that as she was yelling at Kristen. And Kristen told police that she was concerned about Julia driving. So it would make sense, honestly, that she would have driven Julia to meet her sister. That would have been a logical next step. And it would explain why Julia left the spot she agreed to meet her sister. She called her for a ride home because she was too drunk to drive. So why would she get behind the wheel anyway? Now, this welcome station gets her a bit closer to her house, so it might make sense. I will drive you in your car up to the welcome center where your sister can pick you up, and then tomorrow you won't have so far to go to get your car. So all of that makes some sense. There isn't hard evidence of it. And according to Kristen, they checked her cell phone records and pings, and at least her phone was in Freddie's car. And Freddie's car never went to that welcome center. It never went to the crash site. But again, these cell phone pings, this is something that I have not seen posted from those FOIA requests. So anyway, there's a few ways this could have played out. One is that Julia was in the car fighting with someone. She decided to get out of the car at some point and walk. And while she was walking, that person hit her with her car either on purpose or on accident. This impact caused Julia to be pushed up to the guardrail and pushed forward so that her head struck the outside of the post of the guardrail. There is another theory that gets floated that she was outside of the car and there was a physical altercation and then her car was driven away a bit. Again, they may not have all the pieces, but they have enough that they feel it says what the police said happened step-by-step isn't what happened. And I don't know anything about tire marks. So this next part is coming straight from the family's interpretation. What they see is evidence of 
the car dragging Julia across the guardrail before coming to a stop. Then the car suddenly accelerated and kind of took off, and that these tire marks are actually acceleration marks. Now, if these are acceleration marks, that's pretty significant because the police said no one was in the car at that time. It was basically in drive and rolling on its own momentum. So it wouldn't have accelerated to the point that it would leave these tire marks. And then the person behind the wheel of the car bailed on the car and just left it there. Now, Crime Watch Daily did a segment on this case, and they called in a crash scene investigator to look over the files that Kim had, the crash scene photos, including the picture she talked about with the acceleration marks. And he had a few observations. One, the way the police documented aspects of the scene was not in line with current standards. Two, the police investigation was otherwise well done. Three, there was no front end damage to the car consistent with Jalea being hit by her car with someone else behind the wheel and hitting her from behind. But again, this doesn't necessarily discount the family because they're not saying they have a step-by-step way this definitely happened. Four, the clothing. Now, if you remember, it was found bra, shirt, jacket draped on the guardrail. Somehow the guardrail pulled it off of her and it landed in that order and it wasn't inside out. And it actually looked like it was purposely placed there, not just thrown there. The crash scene investigator, he said that actually doesn't strike him as odd. He said that's something that he has learned in his 30 years on this job. Clothes being pulled off in a crash do weird things. Five, he said that every investigation has things that don't make sense. And he understands why the crash scene doesn't make sense to a layperson. Those are his words, a layperson. But with the evidence that he had at that moment, he found that the police ruling was reasonable. He would be open to changing his view with new information. But as it stood, he didn't see the police ruling as outrageously missing the mark. And lastly, he said that if Jalea was wearing her seatbelt, she would have only had minor injuries in this crash and that not wearing her seatbelt was a major factor. So I've mentioned this post that Kristen has made on Facebook. It was made three and a half years after Jalea's death She had been cleared by police, but she was upset at the continued public scrutiny of her words and her actions and the rumors that continued to go out. This is the post where she claims they did check her cell phone location. She goes on to accuse Jalea's mom, Kim, of stalking her and assaulting her. And she said that she would take legal action against what she saw as defamation. But as far as I can tell, No suit has been filed. Honestly, I almost wonder if the family would welcome such a lawsuit. A defamation suit would require some fact-finding to prove that what the family is saying is actually false. And this is pretty much literally what they're asking for. They want a fact-finding investigation to be done to relook at this case, look over the details, and prove one way or the other what happened that night. They don't feel the police investigation did that. So a defamation suit would probably be what Kim and the family wants to happen because it would lead to this. Kristen would be forced to sit down and do a deposition, a full deposition, about what happened that night. There are a lot of things that happened during a defamation suit that someone looking for information would want to happen. So as far as this case goes, I'm leaving this one up to you guys to decide where you fall on this. I know in the past, especially when this show was still in sight, we did a lot of unsolved cases. We did cases with questionable rulings, with room to speculate, and I would often give my opinion. But the truth is, I see both sides of this case. I do think it could have been an accident. But I also agree with the Davis family that there are some gaps here in how it happened that I would like filled in. 
And that's not just me chickening out of giving my opinion, because I've never shied away from that before. I'm not going to start now. But but I think you all need to listen to the podcast about this case. Watch that Crime Watch Daily episode. Watch whatever else you can find. Go to the Justice for Jalea Facebook page. Look at the photos. Read the transcripts yourself. And then you guys can decide, was Jalea killed in a drunk driving accident? Or did she give her keys to a friend to drive her to a meeting spot and something happened along the way? From what I've read, plenty of people are like me and still scratching our heads about it. Kim and Toby and the rest of Jalea's family, though, they have no doubt. They do not believe that Jalea was alone when she died, and they will not stop fighting until they get justice for Jalea. Jalea. 